Welcome to the Carveline Tech Service Podcast, the go-to industrial coatings podcast. Here are your hosts, Jack Walker and Paula Jamis. Welcome to the Carboline Tech Service Podcast. I'm Jack Walker. With me as always is the Director of Technical Service, Mr. Paul, wait for it, a Jameis. So Paul, you know, eventually if you record a hundred and something episodes, close to yeah. 200 episodes, you may forget things that you have said. And I had <laughs> one of the most terrifying things ever happen to me associated with this podcast a couple weeks ago. I met a listener. And this listener in the wild said, I listen to every episode. I feel like I already know you. <laughs> and immediately my head went, oh, no, this can't be good. Not, not good. Like, what did I say over all the years? What, what, what has this person decided about me based on the uh, character I play on the Garbaline Tech Service podcast? Let's be real. I mean, I may have been me 180-something episodes ago, but I have a role and I play it now. And so, uh, but it was fine. Uh, she was great. She's a good specifying engineer. And uh, Courtney, if you're listening, what's up? That- Let me clarify, too. Jack is not an expert knife thrower. That's true. Not real. Let's see who goes back and finds that episode. Right. Anyway, so this week we brought back on Holly Tyler and Doug Sinatera. If you remember, these are our oil and gas experts, and we were continuing our discussion on midstream oil and gas. Here's that interview. Uh, joining us this week uh, is Doug Sinatera. He is our oil and gas market manager. Also joining us this week is Holly Tyler from SBC. Hey guys, how's it going? Great, how are you? Doing good. Doug? Good to be back. So last time you guys were on, we talked uh, a little bit about midstream oil and gas. We kind of gave an introduction to the market, to some of the different challenges that happen within the market. So we want to pick back up where we left off, but we thought it might be nice to review briefly. Can you recap what we talked about the last time you guys were on? Yeah, I'll, I'll recap. So midstream, we talked about really being a very dynamic industry. It's like Jack Walker's golf swing. It can move very fast. It can move very slow, sometimes very fluid. But really midstream is four things. It's transportation. You've got processing. You've got storage. And then you've also got marketing in some cases. The other thing we tackled was the increasing regulation and keeping up with that, particularly with pipelines. Holly covered a bit of that, and we'll talk kind of how coding solutions fit in that today. So the other thing is when you look at the asset owners, historically, you had a lot of IOPs, you know, integrated oil and gas producers, meaning they had assets in upstream, midstream, and downstream. Now you see a lot of independence. You see the financial community involved. A lot of different moving parts there. Man, it seems like I got to up my game if I'm looking at your notes and it says golf analogy. It's like you have to make a note to make fun of Jack right there. Um, anyway, Holly. Last time. Uh, that came naturally, buddy. That came naturally. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Holly, you and Doug talked about some different asset types in midstream, uh, pipeline stations, LNG facilities, storage, and many others. Let's start with pipelines. What are the biggest corrosion challenges in pipelines? The biggest corrosion challenges in the pipeline, and it's a variety of different 
reasons. The first reason would be soil stress. Uh, the different kinds of soil that the pipeline will be buried into may have movement, may have weather changes, may have acidity, etc. The second would be the installation being poorly installed or not properly installed. The third would be high operating temperatures from the hydrocarbon product actually flowing through at a very high temperature. Uh, could cause disbondment. And then also new, newer to the industry are in the shell plays is solid rock. So you're pipelining through solid rock. So it, it has its own special coating as well. Yeah, that's a whole different set of challenges there. If we narrow this down just to corrosion, what are some of the corrosion solutions that we use for these types of scenarios? For the um, corrosion solutions, the first one, let's say that I talked about was soil stress. So if you're just in a standard, say like Nebraska type soil, where it's dirt, not too much sand, not too much rock in an ambient grade, you would just use a regular, our regular 2888, which is a, you know, two-part epoxy that's put on the weld, the bare part of the weld, once the steel is welded together in the field. So you basically apply it in the field and try to get it into the same equality as the line pipe that was quoted in a facility. The second um, that I talked about before was high operating temperature. So you're downstream from a compressor facility or a pump station and it causes the flow of the hydrocarbon to extend in temperature. And so then we would have to consider a, a high temp coating and that would be our 3888. Just different chemistry. And then for rock, which um, a lot of times it's, it's, it's a, again, it's a two-part epoxy, is an ARO. So abrasive resistant overcoat is what that stands for. So over the corrosion coat, we would do a mechanical strength protectant. So it's, it's basically like a cast, if you so call it, for the girth weld to protect it from the rock. Yeah, that rock can be extremely challenging. So Doug, when we started talking about storage, uh, the tanks and vessels, there was a lot of corrosion problems in this area. How do we tackle these with coatings? Well, historically, let's just start with AST or above ground storage tanks. So historically, you'd have the tank plate that was fabricated, it would be sent to site and you'd start blasting away and painting dust everywhere, you know, no containments. Uh, things have changed quite a bit, although you can still do that in some, some remote regions. But fundamentally, what you look at now is you got to look at the, with, look at the end uh, first, you know, where's the tank going to be? What's the requirements there? What kind of environmental controls are needed? And that'll really affect a lot of things that, that go into the selection of systems. And so nowadays, what the midstream uh, tank industry primarily does is you're going to take these tank plates, which are normally eight by 40. You're going to put a primer on them, uh, referred to sometimes as a PCP, not a hallucinogen jack, but a pre-construction primer. Oh man, that's not as much fun. <laughs> so you put those on in the shop, you, you uh, then send it to site, the tank's erected, and then the only full blasting you have, if, it's, if you can do that, is your weld seams. You're going to sweet blast the external tank shell on the roof and then put your you know two coat system on so i mean this is better from a health and safety perspective from a product you know productivity perspective but you also got to consider when you're putting on these coatings if you have restrictions you may have to to do a brush and roll application so a lot of different challenges there so when you look at the tank roof specifically this is a very talked about area and you know it's almost like ordering a pizza you know you may like canadian bacon and pineapple, Paul may like pepperoni and anchovies or whatever, 
ultimately you're going to get to the to the end goal the same. Um, so when you look at the different systems on an EFR or a tank roof, essentially you're trying to provide a coating or coating system that you know has immersion grade capabilities. Because if you think about the the top of a roof, it's going to you know bend and flex a little bit. It'll have the these ponding water areas called bird baths. So it, it's, um, you know, it's something you, you, you got to address. And when you look at this, the systems, you know, people do different things. Like I mentioned, you've got aluminum mastic epoxies in two or three coats. You've got tank linings or heavy duty epoxies in one coat up to 20 mils in some cases. Sometimes you'll have a hold primer there. We've even seen thermal spray aluminum on tank roofs. Obviously, it doesn't seem practical because of the stipulations with the with the prep and, and some of the variables there and having a qualified crew that, that's actually done that. But you can see, I mean, the, the solutions and opportunities there, it's, it's pretty wide and vast. You know, it just depends on the operator's preference, the applicator's preference. Typically, there's a lot of discussion around that. The other area that we consider that, that sometimes is overlooked is that chine seal area, which where the, the tank horizontal shell comes down and, and it hits the, the, you know, concrete pad. Sometimes over, over time, these, these tanks, as I mentioned, they'll, the steel will kind of ebb and flow and move. And sometimes you end up with one to two inch gap there, easy place for, for, you know, moisture ingress to get. So you have to protect these areas. Basically you've got to put a bridge from the tank shell down to that uh, base that I talked about. Normally these are flexible materials. In some cases, if that gap is big, you'll take a what they call a backer rod, which is essentially a rope. You'll shove it in there to give it some stability, and then you'll you'll put the coating system over it. So, a few different options there, but but certainly something I think people are considering a lot more when you look at specifications and and definitely tank rehabs. And then the last part of storage, we talked about spheres. You know, these are pressurized vessels that that hold gas. Uh, the external coating system and the, the philosophy or methodology is similar to tanks. You may have pre-coated plate, you'll bring out, erect the sphere and put your two or three coat system. The columns that support the, the sphere are typically fireproof. This is done with a cementitious or an epoxy. And again, a lot of times what we're seeing now is that application of the fireproofing will be done in the field. You'll go take it to the site and then they'll do the touch-ups again same idea as the tank plate. You're taking labor hours out of the field from a health and safety perspective. Commercially, it's a little more beneficial. Yeah, before Paul asks this next technical question, I just want to interject some marketing guy in there. I feel like the spheres are the most photogenic of all the storage tanks. I, I really think the spheres are really cool and uh, look really pretty. So there, there's my marketing guy influence to the this conversation. And Paul, on with the technical stuff. The, the tanks are pretty. That's yes. Jack's contribution. Yes, that is... Uh... <laughs> Just to show you how far I've gone down the road. Uh. That's right. We just had one in Tulsa decorated because it's on Route 66. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, they painted the whole tank. Well, now that we're doing snippets for YouTube, I think a very legitimate snippet is Jack's opinion is the spheres are pretty. Yeah. And we can put that picture in there. Uh -huh. <laughs> spheres are pretty, especially from an aerial yeah. shot, a drone shot. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about it. I think I feel like the spheres are a very up and coming, very popular thing that's been going on lately. It's there's been a lot of build outs. So let's talk a little bit more about those, especially at the midstream in the LNG systems. 
Yeah, so like you mentioned, there, there are these pressurized gases as the industry grows and continues to grow. You're going to see more of those being built. There's you know more technology and methodology and approach on how you build them. But when you look at the the build outs for midstream in general, you've got the areas which are the the trains areas, which are really your you're compressing your gas in that area. You've got a structural steel module set up with related piping and equipment. You've got tanks, which are typically double walled. It's a concrete tank and a nickel alloy tank. Lots of com- complexity and challenges designing that. And then you'll have your pipe work and, and docks areas. In general, when you look at LNG, the consensus there is that you're really you're really engineering and, and using your kind of your best in class systems. And I'll, I'll make a couple of references here in a minute. There's a one of the true SMEs for LNG when it comes to materials is Ben Fultz from Bechtel. He wrote a nice paper that was the challenges of LNG material selection. So the way he defined it was pretty, pretty good. You know, for corrosion, you've got inside the pressure boundary exposed to process conditions like the some of the equipment and compression I mentioned. And then you've got exterior exposed to weather. So you know, in general, the design life for the equipment is about 20 years and the piping is about 20 years as well. Most of the bulk piping you'll see will have a coat of zinc on it. It'll come to the field and you'll have another two coats of a probably epoxy and urethane for UV and color. Uh, you've got your insulated piping where you're going to put a epoxy phenolic. And then when it comes to fire protection, you got a lot going on there. You've got to protect against a um, hydrocarbon jet fire plus a cryogenic spill. And just recently, some colleagues of ours at the AMP Bring On The Heat Conference did a a nice paper on that and presentation where really you're having this combination of exposure to a cryogenic spill, which would be for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, which if that happens, you've got major steel embrittlement and a a bunch of problems, uh, followed by uh, the release of a jet fire, which is very erosive. So in this scenario, to, to deal with that kind of uh, situation and corrosion, you got really two options. You got the uh, cementitious products that you can use, like our Pyrocrete 341, which is tested for both. And then you've got the epoxy and tumescent systems. And typically when there's a cryogenic spill involved, you're going to put a some sort of a syn- syntactic epoxy uh, initially to the steel that's going to you know, protect against your, your cryogenic element. And then you, you'll have your epoxy into mess of product to deal with the uh, jet fire. And so, you know, these are really, if you, if you look at that system, I mean, you're looking in some cases up to 25 millimeters. There's a lot of material. It's quite the process. Yeah. And brought up 341. And I, I would say that there was a lot of advancements in the way we test our products for these type of exposures when we develop this product. And I think the LNG facilities were really taken into consideration when we were deciding what order to test some of these specimens in. So I kind of want to circle back around to some of the application uh, aspects of this. Holly, one big part of the puzzle uh, for any success is having a trained and qualified applicator. Can you talk about how important that is, even from surface prep all the way to the final installation? What do you find to be the best approach? Well, let me go back to what I said previously. You know, what we're trying to do with the girth weld coating, which is where our niche is, is we're trying to get the pipe to equalize to the coating that was applied in a plant setting on new steel inside, um, you know, pristine conditions. And then, you know, and it's the most exp- expensive part of the pipeline. The, the contractor, the, and then the PVF, the pipes, valves, and all the fittings, all the steel, the two most important expensive parts. 
So, you know, everybody's all excited when the pipe's rolling and it's all fresh and it, it got coated with fusion bond epoxy in the plant and it looks like, you know, beautiful pea green. And then you get out to the field and it's damaged because the rail car or, you know, it sat outside for a long time and you have some UV degradation. And so also the schedules, the contractors are always behind schedule, right? So they want to hurry up and put that pipe in the ground. They want to get rid of it. They don't want to look at it anymore. It's an eyesore. So here, that's where we come in. Fortunately for us, but unfortunate too, because you're dealing with all those rushed priority type mentalities that in the field. So at SBC and Carboline, especially with the SPC products specifically, we require at any field application that the crew that is doing actual coating, which is usually the general contractor, they usually do it themselves. I mean, they do sub out sometimes, you know, on big union jobs, big OD jobs to a specialty paint contractor like a CRC Evans or an Ageon. We make sure that every single person that's touching the paint and the epoxy is trained and certified. So not only are they trained, but they're required to pass the test. And they don't always pass. And, you know, as much as you want to pass a contractor that just placed a huge order, you can't do it. And that's really how SPC has um, driven themselves to the top of the market in growth wall coatings is the quality. Everybody has a pretty good coating system, but you're only as good as the application. And so the surface prep is really important. You have to get a, a blast, an anchor pattern for the epoxy to bond to. That's done in the field. And um, so you got to get a clean, dry surface done in the field. You've got to protect it while you're doing the epoxy and keep the, the steel heated so you get a cure. It the, the surface temperature has to be ambient. So it has to be at least 70 degrees. And we have fast cures and slow cures. So we have a winter grade and a summer grade, but the pipe still has to be prepped and ready basically like it is when it's the fusion bond layers put on in the plant. So you have all those constraints working against you. You've got, you know, wind, rain, hail, sleet, and snow. So those are the main problems with getting the application correct. And really it's, it's the number one cause for failure is the poorly applied product. There, there are the, the opportunities where somebody may misdiagnose the growth weld coating, whether you know they didn't know that the temperature was high operating or they didn't realize it was corrosive and they didn't use it in ID coating. So, but mostly it's application, application, application. And SBC does not charge for this. If you order from us, um, you know, an operator has us on the specs and we're out there to train you. It's part of our package. It's, it's what we require to maintain quality, which also follows through on the warranty. You know, Holly, that was a great answer. And you gave some, you brought up a couple of good points. One of them kind of leads into the, into the next question being, as we've seen some occasionally things get misidentified, Frequently, that comes from a change as we've been moving a lot from traditional fuels and traditional chemicals that we're used right. to into some more of the renewables and the biofuels that that people have been moving into. Um, we touched a little bit on this last time we had you guys on, but can you comment a little bit on what this means for how the industry is changing and how we're attacking this new corrosion scenario that we have to deal with? Absolutely. So 
on the, the outside dimensions of the pipe, the OD, it's pretty much the same animal. I mean, you're still you're still protecting it against corrosion on, on the outside dimensions. On the inside dimensions, the ID, you're dealing with something that's going to corrode the pipe from inside out. So you're worrying about the corrosion on two different levels and two different spectrums. And the ID also can, uh, there's other things that you can take into consideration like flow efficiency and deodorization. So Carboline and SPC both have multiple choices of ID coatings, and it would be specifically a formula that was specific for the chemical. But the interesting part of it, and where I've come into the picture here lately, is a lot of the operators that used to build a lot of pipelines are, are using fields that are abandoned, so contaminated soil places, places that can't do anything with, yeah. to put these solar panel farms in. So you almost have to treat the pilings of solar unit panels as the pipe because it's going into the ground. So it's being buried and it's also in very corrosive soil. Absolutely. Outstanding. Well, I think that about does it for the midstream oil and gas part two episode. Thank you very much, Holly and Doug for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. And until next time, I'm Jack and somewhere on this screen is Paul. And uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Ciao. Take care. And so for the Carboline Tech Service Podcast, I'm Paul. And I'm Jack. And we'd like, like to thank, thank you for your support. Who put the line?